You're listening to Non-Toxic, a podcast where we connect the dots between the manosphere and the atmosphere. I'm your host, Daniel Penny. This week, we'll be talking with Mato Waiuhi. He is a musician, a producer, a rapper, a composer from South Dakota, and I think he's one of the most interesting young Native artists in the music business today. He caught my eye because of his composition work for the TV show Reservation Dogs, which I highly recommend if you haven't seen it, which is about a group of teenagers living on a reservation in Oklahoma who kind of get into trouble and can't decide whether or not they want to leave their community and strike out on their own. And Matto's composition for that show and some of the songs that were rolling in the credits, I just thought, these are so good. Who is this guy? Uh, So... I looked him up and yeah, I just discovered this really interesting young artist who thankfully has just signed for his first record deal. And in this conversation, we talk about the idea of being a traditional versus a contemporary Native artist, stereotypes about masculinity in Native culture, and Mato's relationship to place and his understanding of his connection to his family's ancestral land back in South Dakota, and also what it means to be a young artist on the go, traveling and connecting with fans who are indigenous or fans from any other background all around the world. It's a great conversation with some excellent tunes. Enjoy. Matoehui, thank you so much for joining Non-Toxic. It's a pleasure to have you. Really appreciate it. And yeah, I'm excited to talk about your music. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited. I My voice will probably change throughout the broadcast because <laughs> earlier in the day, it's like lower and then it'll start warming up and it'll get higher. Yeah. Forewarning listeners. Okay. Well, you sound great. So just... To- a bit about you. You're a musician, a composer. You've got three full-length albums already out and another on the way, Stank Face, Standing Soldier. You're also behind the music for the film War Pony and the TV series Reservation Dogs, which is how I found out about you. So you're a busy guy and extremely productive for someone who is still quite young and, and has just really burst out on the scene, I thought maybe we could start with your new project, which is Stank Face, Standing Soldier. When does that drop? It's coming. We have a tentative date right now. And yeah, I got signed in the process of of promoting it and stuff so that it didn't complicate things. It just intensified things, let's just say so. But it's okay. all good. And so, yeah, it's it's coming very soon. Okay, so we'll keep our eyes peeled. I know that your your government last name is Standing Soldier, and I was interested to hear why you decided to bring that part of yourself back into the title of your album, because it sounds like, you know, you chose a different name as your recording name, and then you're sort of reuniting those two halves with this album. Yeah, so how I kind of came to that my artist's name is Matoa Yuhi, which is also my Lakota name. And so a lot of tribes and a lot of, you know, folks, indigenous peoples will have kind of a government name and then maybe an alternative, you know, cultural name that 
signifies either a relationship to land or to family or to you know a prominent figure or anything like that and so my name translates to conquering bear and then motto standing soldier is my government name and so with this music that i was making in this era in my life really looking inward and backwards and in terms of family and whatnot and so it felt really apt to you know call it by my family's name i don't want to say too much but it, yeah it was really it was it was it was really a meditation on family and and what it means to me and we we as a family we lost a lot of really key people over the making of this album and that's also kind of paying homage to the folks who are no longer with us physically and it's kind of giving credence to that name a little bit and also just that the the stank face standing soldier just that that title was so you know intriguing to me too and so yeah that's kind of how i got to that point and it's really great i mean i'm really really proud of the work and i'm just proud of exploring that part of me you know unabashedly let's go back a bit how did you start making music and what role did music play for you growing up splitting your time between sioux falls and the pine ridge reservation in south dakota yeah, growing up, music was pretty integral in a few different ways. I think from just a cultural standpoint, you know, a lot of people that come from some sort of indigenous or really any culture, you know, music is, there's no delineation. Music is just kind of a part of it. And so I would compare it to, you know, within my own culture, you know, spirituality and religion aren't really a separate thing, just as much as music and culture aren't really a separate thing. Some of my earliest memories were going to ceremonies and singing these these songs in Lakota. And I didn't know the words, but I, I would I figure out the melodies and become comfortable singing aloud. And so that was this idea of singing aloud was was really impactful on me. And then, yeah, around the same time, too, I was five or six and I was just falling in love with, you know, different types of music like Green Day. And, you know, my parents were really they weren't shy about who they loved musically. So Bob Marley. You know, my sister loved Lauren Hill. Yeah, just kind of all the all the best road trip songs, too, because we were going from the res back to Sioux Falls a lot. And so I was like, you know, Fleetwood Mac and all these folks. Predominantly from a rap standpoint, it was like Ice Cube and Tupac. And so I remember my my parents got a, I think, a twofold Tupac Greatest Hits album. It's so funny because back in the like back then, I didn't know what albums really were. And I thought that was the album. And so I was like, man, this is like, he doesn't miss. It's like banger after banger after banger. I began to understand this idea of like, and I, poetry too. Just there was a lot of kind of the, all of the different variables of rap and hip hop music. I started doing kind of like slam poetry in, in eighth grade. And then I, I got to a point of falling in love with these these rappers and these hip hop artists who were maybe three four years older than me they weren't really you know they were they were kids they were 17 i was 13 and they were doing this amazing stuff and so that to me that was a kind of a, a watershed moment of well they're not that much older than me so what's stopping me from trying and from a from a producing or from a music standpoint i was not producing really i was very i used to google how to do the t-pain voice in like middle school because that was like <laughs> the only thing i was concerned with 
And then when I got into high school and I started actually writing my own lyrics and stuff, a lot of them were just the beats that I would find. I was a huge like Mad Lib fan and, and Jay Dilla and MF Doom and all these different people, all these different forefathers. And so, yeah, I started just rapping over their, their beats and kind of finding my voice that way. Let's listen to a few bars from Part-Time Indian, which is the title track of your debut album. The ones who will come up and run them, give them to uncles and aunties and cousins, owning the suffering, that shit is forever though. No sugar coating, fuck them, let them know. Been with the shit and you just potty training. Itchy for greatness and stay impatient. Got mascots on my mind frame. Get buku paintings, then we buy them out. Half man with a heart filled, who's full of mouth. Yes. Still a part-time Indian with a full-time mission to make it sure we show them out. We make them bounce. I've heard you talk about the tension in being a native artist with the idea of being like a traditional artist versus being a contemporary artist. And I know in your work you make a lot of references to like native culture and you use sounds and samples that a non-native audience might not be familiar with. Could you talk a little bit about bridging that gap between whatever traditional and contemporary means to you? Yeah, I think when I got into music making and just art making, I guess, and expression, I kind of felt that there was a dichotomy between the two. And then I kind of got to a point where I think I got less self-aggrandizing in terms of like, what am I, what I'm doing is like super, you know, like savior. There's like the saviorism complex of things. And so I unlearned a little bit about making there be this dichotomy between contemporary and traditional because they're, they're so related, you know, and they can't have one without the other. And I also read this book, A Yellow Woman by Leslie Marmon Silco, and she has this she has this quick little moment about tradition and she talks about how tradition is just a reference point. There's no really such thing as tradition. It's just, you know, our version of tradition of from like a Lakota standpoint for my people, like you kind of have this idea in your head of, okay, what is tradition? And you think of maybe a time period, maybe 19th century, you know, 1860s, 1850s, that's traditional living. You talk to them in that era, they might be thinking of another bygone era. And that's kind of helped guide me into what I'm doing next is that, okay, I, there is no set definition of tradition. Therefore, a contemporary lens is kind of a necessity and it can be so informed and guided by your culture. And that kind of messes this whole idea of these two strict lines of contemporary and tradition. How does that translate like into the work? You know, when you're thinking, okay, I'm going to riff on something or like, this is a chant that I remember hearing, but like, I'm going to take it in a new direction. Like, wh what does that look like in terms of process for you? Yeah, that's a good question. Like I, from the outside in, I'm, you know, native hip hop artist, native rapper. And like, well, what does that look like? Kind of turned on its side a little bit. I have these ideas of like, oh, it's, it's interesting to subvert that or, or queer that or, or make it taste different that this kind of stereotype or just this thought that even natives have amongst one another. I think first and foremost, I've learned that within my art and within what I put out publicly, 
everything I do is going to be guided by what I'm feeling at the time. Sometimes, you know, I'll speak Lakota on songs, but it's coming from a place of just straight candor. It's just like, that's how I would talk regularly. I have the privilege of, of humanizing my native experience and my cultural experience. And, and I, and I want to be in that with a huge degree of, you know, authenticity and, and verisimilitude and, and, and flaws too, you know, and just, so mm -hmm. that's kind of how I go through with that stuff. You talked just now about in your music, kind of going from a place of feeling and striving for authenticity about where you're at at any given time. But I know in your composition work, it's not about you. It's, it's about what's happening with the characters and creating a world sonically for the audience to inhabit. Can you talk a little bit about your work for Reservation Dogs and how it is that you came to compose and, and what you learned through the process of doing that show? I got involved with that through just my own music. I was just making it kind of, you know, in my little world. And there's a few moments where I think it, it got seen on a larger scale in terms of Indian country. It's kind of what we call our sector of the world, Indian country. And it is not just the U.S. It's just kind of like all of, you know, could be North America, but it also extends globally to some extent. So, yeah, I, I, I think I was meeting a lot of folks who would work on the show later. And it was just from, you know, seeing them in L.A. or whatnot or. You know, I was, I was still in school at the time. I went to the University of Southern California and I was just making music. Yeah. And I didn't really know what to expect from anything. And then Sterling Harjo, the showrunner, I had heard through some friends that he was interested in having me do music for the show. And at, up to that point, I had not scored anything officially. I think I was 22, 23 at the time. And yeah, he just called and said like, you know, is this something you'd be interested in or do you, and do you make, do you produce all your own music? And I was like, yeah, I do. You know, I, I really did that just because I, I'm a huge fan of folks like Tyler, the creator and, you know, Flying Lotus and just these artists who kind of, you know, make the worlds that they occupy. And so I just started producing when I was younger, like around 16, 17. And then I just kind of kept with that too. So up to that point, I think I knew a little bit around my way around, like just producing and, and so, yeah, he, he didn't pro he said like, I can't promise this. I'm going, I'm going to try, I'm going to fight for you in the network, but yeah, this is I, like, I'd love for you to do it. Okay. I never felt pressure. Cause I think I, I saw the pilot months before it came out and everything that I just talked about with not settling for expectations, I saw in the first, you know, five minutes of the show. And it just felt really, really, it felt really, really validating and affirming as an artist to to work on something so insularly as my music and then see it be those same principles be externalized in a show was so cool. I was like, oh man, I was, I was, it was all meant to be, it was all, it was all leading up to this as being one of the pillars of my career, just my expression too. And it was great. And I'm really I'm really grateful that my art was seen in that light as well. And so, yeah, I just kind of started. And I, every season that progressed, I kind of, my leash got extended to some extent. And I was learning too, as I went, everyone on that show was kind of learning as they went, which was the, the beautiful thing about it is because, you know, everyone involved 
you know, there's so many natives and so many, they're so talented and thoughtful and also didn't come from TV necessarily. And so we were all learning as we went. It was really, it was a gift to give my, my art, my music making to other, other characters and their evolutions. And it was actually nice because sometimes it's hard. I'm sure any artist listening will attest it. It's hard to, for me, at least maybe I'll just say it myself. For me, it can be hard to express what's going on intrinsically all the time. So to do that for other characters, what are they feeling? It, it was a great, it was a great meditation on empathy and listening and watching. And yeah, so it was really, I mean, and I've, I've gone on to score some other things since, and it's just been great. More of my conversation with Mato Wayuhi after the break. This episode of Non-Toxic is sponsored by Blue Corn Candles, a Colorado-based company that's been making handcrafted beeswax candles since 1991. Most candles in the market are made of paraffin, a diesel byproduct that's literally scraped from the bottom of the barrel. Blue Corn Candles are made from sustainably harvested and lightly filtered beeswax. The candles smell great, burn super slowly, and most importantly, they don't produce any toxic fumes. For the first time, Blue Corn has launched a new line of scented candles based on the rugged landscapes of Colorado. From the sagebrush-covered foothills of Ridgeway to the pine forests of Telluride. During these dark months, Blue Corn is running a special deal for non-toxic listeners. Enter the code NONTOXIC, that's one word, all caps, at checkout to receive 10% off your order. Shipping within the US and internationally. One of the big themes in the show is this connection to place. And the characters are struggling with do they leave the reservation because of economic opportunities or do they stay because like this has become you know their ancestral home and there's like it's not just a community of people but also there's a relationship to like the land itself and there's i think one of the episodes where they are spending some time poaching on some land that i guess is like next to the reservation that's now owned by some texas ranchers is I think quite a, a pretty powerful meditation about the way the characters relate to this place. I'm curious to hear a little bit about your connection, if if you if you feel like that's an important part of your yourself to nature, whatever that might mean. Yeah, that's a great question. I think about that pretty often in terms of the relationship between place and culture. And I've been really transient since 18. I just turned 26 a few months ago and like so that's you know that's eight years of like almost every year I would move whether it be in LA or you know across the country I was constantly I've been constantly moving and you're in London right now right yeah outside London I'm in Cambridge okay so yeah you probably you know you could probably attest to like what it is to be in the traveling mindset so it wasn't until recently that I've gone home both to the res and just to Sioux Falls and kind of the Midwest in general. And my hair goes down and my breathing 
slows and my shoulders fall and it's just this like feeling of just home and equanimity i guess is a good way to put it and importance yeah hearing cicadas and smelling you know a few moments before it rains and all this stuff is like was really it's it makes me really emotional in the past year or so and i think it's because i am just growing up and also i miss home which is a huge thing and so it's funny, a couple of days ago, I, I woke up in LA and I just woke up with the thought, I miss home, I miss home. I miss being. And I was like, well, what can I do? So I kind of thought about it. I can call someone. I can't really, I, like, I was just thinking. And then I remember there's a hike or there's a trail in Calabasas of all places in LA that for some reason you go there and it looks like the res. Like, it looks like my res. I took my friend Van there, who's who grew up in Montana. He's Crow. He grew up on the Crow Reservation. I took him there this last summer, and he was stupefied. He's like, this looks like the res. It's so weird. And I think it's so great because that's right next to one of the most, you know, like, luxurious, elitist places in L.A. But it looks like the res. I've actually shot a video there. I shot this this video called Boogie Boy there because I loved it so much. And I go there, and it feels like and it's the rolling hills and also the, the pine trees and everything. And so, yeah, it was really important. And so I, I've made it such a priority for me to go home because not only is it to see my family, it's just also, yeah, to be amongst the land and to feel the gravel and the soil and whatnot. And yeah, I didn't think, I never thought I was above this, this innate connection with the land. I think I had to find my own though, you know, in terms of like, I always knew that just being Lakota, being native, our relationship to the land is so, it's so imperative. I also needed to know what it does for me, what I can do for the land, you know, this reciprocity in terms of, of a relationship. And so, yeah, it's been, it's been really good to experience that kind of, as I become, you know, into my, you know, adulthood and, and it's been so, it's been so gratifying to be able to make that connection and yeah and i know with my newer work too it's kind of it's kind of a return to center i think in terms of like land and stuff so yeah it's been it's been really great and i miss it a lot um i've i've read that earl sweatshirt has described rap as reporting do you feel like that idea applies to what you're doing as an artist yeah i agree with that premise that rap is reporting i think a lot of i mean you look at the history of hip hop and rap music and whatnot, and it was such a heavily censored art form as it became such a such a life force for black culture and, and brown culture. And it and yeah, it became really dangerous because people were telling the truth, you know, about these institutions and about the systems of oppression and all of these different things that you know, perpetuate marginalization of artists and creators and community. And I think for me, what it's what I've internalized that as is just, yes, yeah, saying what is true to me. And that's come with a lot of flaws and a lot of insistencies and a lot of like vulnerabilities. And I mean, it's funny too. you think as an artist, you think it's going to get easier to say how you feel completely, but it's not getting harder. It's just getting like it's it's always a journey. It's like a practice. And a practice in vulnerability. I think there's something I do, I do push back on, or I do question a lot is kind of the stoicism that our survival as indigenous people often, you know, predicated 
because we had to be a certain type of weight. And so at a place where I can have those feelings, have those thoughts, have those emotions, have those expressions that my whole family's had. And so me just putting it to wax or music is like, yeah, I think it's important. Speaking of vulnerability and, and communicating that with others, you're wearing a shirt that I think it says Native American boyfriend on it. Is that right? <laughs> yes, it is. Yes. So I'm curious how that translates into, you know, relationships are like a big subject in your work. And you talked earlier about, you know, not just being a Native artist, but you're also a queer artist. How, how does that come into, I don't want to say tension with, but how does that intersect with this idea of being a, a stoic, like Indian guy? Because I know it's a stereotype, but I think it's a stereotype for a reason and that a lot of people still kind of think that way. And, and I imagine that, that that took some outgrowing. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I grew up in a very, you know, an environment that kind of, applauded one type of man and i think anyone with a mixed identity kind of feels that and you kind of make them there's a moment or two when you're young okay this is i'm different or that you know i don't i'm not like this and it's hard enough for just a, a, you know hetero or a, a straight native person to like feel completely i don't know like affirmed and validated within the the traditional structures of of culture and community and, and and society and whatnot and so yeah i just i i would struggle with that growing up and i think i i, mean, I have two older sisters who and a, and a beautiful mother and i you know my father who passed away a few years ago and like they they led with love first and foremost and so i think just from an internal like familial standpoint it was enough enough of a safe space as much of a safe space as it could be i didn't feel quite affirmed in those things until i think i just became an adult 18 19 and i felt it was necessary if i were to really put my best foot forward in music in terms of vulnerability and honesty and expression that i would have to go towards those subjects that i would never dream of towards you know and and it was it took you know, conversations had with my loved ones and my family and my father that were really, you know, tough, really uncomfortable. And it, and so I'm like, well, I'll, I can do that, you know, like I'll, and it's not a martyrdom or anything. It's just more like I, you know, that's how I want people to heal, you know, or I want people to feel okay. Cause I wish I had that growing, you know, and I didn't. And so I want to do that for folks who are coming next. Cause a lot of this stuff is just borrowed, you know, anything is everything is borrowed and so that was important for me to but yeah it's still happening it's still going on I'm still learning about myself and yeah all I know is that I want folks to feel safe when it comes to those different parameters Matto thank you so much for coming on non-toxic it was a pleasure getting to talk to you about your journey as an artist your your composition work your your music projects and I'll be looking out for stank face standing soldier when it drops soon thank you i really appreciate it daniel thank you for having me yeah i'm a huge fan of the show so i'm honored to be 
on the podcast. I know my way around a butt of a joke. Uncle said that I'm too Hollywood to dig him a hole. That was a grave mistake. Now I'm rescinding his role. As the greatest native actor, South Dakota, come on. I've been chattering with family, trying to build upon the acres, maintaining some good faith. Can't fix the stank face, can't pick the ones who stay when shit is families. I miss them every day. Oh, yeah. When it got a raise and made my own parade. Yo, I guess you could say. And that's it for this episode of Non Toxic. If you want to find more of what Mato has been up to, you can check him out on Instagram. Also, Stay tuned for his new album, Stank Face, Standing Soldier. The track you just heard is going to be off that album. I'm your host, Daniel Penny. Non-Toxic is produced by Loose Thread Studios with help from Andrew Lewis. Our music is by Nathan Sharp, and the artwork is by Sam Creasy. This season is supported by Blue Corn Candles, but our biggest supporters are listeners like you. If you'd like to keep detoxifying the discourse, go to patreon.com slash non-toxic-podcasts and sign up to become a patron today. We really can't make the show without your help, and every bit counts. And of course, if you like what you're hearing, rate and review us and tell your friends, because that's how other people find the show. <laughs>